0: I do want to invite you to turn with me in your scriptures to Romans chapter 8. We're we'll looking this morning at verses 18 to 25. Romans chapter 8. We'll begin our reading in verse 18. Hear the word of God. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth... ...pairing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. The creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. The creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay. Uh, The updated version of the ESV there reads, Corruption... is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and pray that as we study it now, that your spirit would be our teacher. Guide us, Lord, into a good understanding of your truth. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. The start of a new year means different things to different people. For some, it simply means the hope of a fresh start. For others, it means saying goodbye and good riddance to uh, a year that has pretty much just chewed them up and spit them out. And for still others, New Year's is a starting line. For the resolutions that they've made to make specific changes in their lives. Now, certainly for Christians, a new year may mean these things and more, but also for us as Christians, a new year means something else, means something more. It means that we are that much closer to the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. When will it happen? I don't know. But I do know that the end of one year and the start of another year is one more mile marker that means that that event, whenever it is going to, uh, occur, and, uh, like the disciples in Acts 1, Jesus hasn't given to us to know times and seasons established by the Father's authority. But we do know that going to a new calendar means that that event is that much closer. Now, our passage this morning speaks of waiting for Christ's return and all that it means. And I do hope that for you as a believer, there is a conscious anticipation of that event. We recognize history isn't going in circles. We may be beginning a new calendar, a new year. We're not so much going in circles, though, as we are making forward progress. And for believers... Uh Yes, certainly, we anticipate that upon our death we would be with the Lord in heaven. But our great hope, that thing to which we look forward, that thing to which we, which we anticipate, is the return, the glorious return of our Lord Jesus Christ and all that that means for us. The end of history, the end of suffering, all that it means in terms of entering into new heavens and new earth. Well, that's what our passage speaks about this morning. Uh, it's telling us, as Christians, we should be anticipating, consciously looking forward to the glorious return of Christ. Now, it begins in verse 18 with the word for, which tells you that Paul is, is continuing on from another thought. And in fact, in verse 18, he says, for I consider, because of what he said in verse 17, he said that we are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him now, in order that we may also be glorified with him then. So suffering now, glory then, and in verse 18 he says for. So he's continuing that thought of suffering and glory. And we see that in the passage that we read just a few minutes ago. Well, as we look at this passage, it pretty much falls into two parts, and Paul is saying something similar, but a little different in each part. first part of it, the first verses, 19 through 22, we want to look at. He's telling us that creation is waiting. It's waiting for the return of Christ. Creation itself. Now, that seems a little strange, but that's exactly what Paul says. Verse 19. The creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. In other words, it will accompany the return of Christ and the renewal of all things. Now, what is the creation? Is that everybody? Is that. Unbelievers? Is that believers? Well, no. He, he refers to believers uh, in the next section, as we'll see. So when he says the creation is waiting, he's basically talking about non-human creation. Uh, this creation apart from humanity, which is more or less dealt with separately. But this creation, uh, it personifying it, the rocks wait, No, not necessarily. He's he's adding personal attributes, but saying that creation itself looks forward to an event in the future with eager longing. And the word has the idea of straining forward, of, of really pressing, of looking ahead. Eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. What does that mean? It's the revealing of the sons of God. Well, it has to do with, with, in a sense, our vindication, the revealing of who we are as the children of God. Uh, when everything is made plain at the return of Christ and unbelievers are seen for the rebellious, wayward, sinful, uh, stiff-necked, hard-hearted people they are, and those who, by the grace of God, have believed in Christ and followed Him are revealed to be the ones who are Right? the ones who are true, the ones who were following the true Savior, were vindicated, the revealing of the sons of God. In other words, who we are really is made plain to one another and to the world. Creation is looking forward to that. And not just sort of casually waiting the day, but there is, as he says, eager longing. Why? Why is creation not just out there biding its time, just happy to be here? Why well, is it looking forward with so much anticipation to that day? Well, he tells us in verse 20 because there's something wrong with it. The creation was subjected to futility. Not willingly. He didn't want that. But it was because of him who subjected it, because of God who subjected it. Now, that's what we read about in Genesis, in Genesis chapter 3. God's subjecting creation to futility. We tend to refer to it as the curse, right? Where God comes after this fall, after Adam and Eve disobeyed, and he He intentionally and purposefully makes something wrong in his creation. Where it's not as it should be. For Eve, it's this pain in childbearing. Her, her, In a sense, her primary function, what she was created to be able to do, that Adam certainly couldn't do. And yet there was going to be pain there, literally, physically, but it may be more than that. There may be emotional pain referred to as well. And a bad relationship with her husband, that she will desire him and he will rule over her. Now, there's much debate about exactly what that means. But in light of other places in Scripture, notably Ephesians 5, that talk about the relationship of husband and wife, it's interesting that Paul seems to address the same areas that were affected in Genesis 3. The wife is to submit herself to her husband's leadership, just as the church submits to Christ. And at the same time, the husband is to love his wife. He's not to be harsh with her. He's not to be a tyrant toward her, but to love her as Christ loves the church. And he seems to be addressing that, that central point of sin in the relationship between a husband and wife, for both the wife and the husband. That, I think, is what's referred to in Genesis 3. Her desire will be for her husband in the sense of, of controlling him, of, of ruling him. And he will rule over her, perhaps in a, in a harsh or sinful way. But then also, where Adam is concerned, and his primary function is the, the the one who is to care for the garden... Now, Eve assists him in that, helps him in that. That is going to be an arduous and difficult task. It seems that before the fall, before sin entered in, it was a pleasant task. That for minimal effort, there was maximum result. You ever get that in your work? You ever feel like you just put in the minimal effort and, wow, great results? Hardly. We say, well, life doesn't work that way. No, it doesn't, precisely because of this curse that God placed on creation that it would be reversed. For maximum effort, there would be minimal result, and it would be accompanied with thorns and thistles, problems, unintended consequences, unforeseen effects, all of those kinds of things. That's creation. We say, well, that's just the way life is. That's the way the world is. Well, it is, but it wasn't always that way. And the creation knows it. Now, Paul is is personifying creation. It's as if creation recognizes that it has been made wrong. That it's not what it should be. It's not how it should be. And it's eagerly waiting for that to be made right. Do you think of Harvard breaking his leg? It is something like a broken, broken arm or a broken leg. You know, there it is. It's there. We might be able to move it if our arm is in a cast, minimally, maybe kind of hold things, but it's not the way it used to be, and it's not the way it's going to be. And so there's anticipation for that cast to be removed. We can use our hand, we can use our fingers, we can use our leg the way it was supposed to be. We look forward to that, very much so. Well, that's in effect what Paul is talking about here. It was subjected to this curse forever. Is God done? He's just say fine, a pox on you? No. It was subjected, look at verse 21, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. This, this curse was placed on it. This futility was put into effect in that hope of that day coming when it would be lifted. As he says here, it would be set free from its bondage to corruption, its tendency to run down, for things to run down, for things to break, for things to fall apart. And they do in this world. Entropy. Things tend to go just from a state of higher order to lower order. Things tend to break down. Now, some of you may think, well, my car just gets better with age. And maybe you love it more with age, but the fact is, eventually, it's going to need a new water pump, the battery's going to fail, the transmission's going to fall out. It's, it happens. Things run down. Things break. Things fall apart. We say that's just the way it is. It is now. That, that bondage to decay, that bondage to corruption, and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Now, creation, again, is looking forward to something that involves us. It's looking forward to participating and sharing in that freedom of the glory that we will have in Christ. Now, he's anticipating what he's going to say in the following verses, but creation is linked to that. Creation is linked to our redemption. And that's all Paul is saying here. We need to recognize creation looks forward to the return of Christ because it, too, participates in the redemption of Christ. You see, Jesus' death on Calvary was not just to become your personal Lord and Savior. Well, it was that, but it was to redeem the universe. Now, that's not to say it's to redeem every single human being, but it was to redeem creation. Christ died for this fallen creation, just as he died for his elect sheep, so that it one day would be remade, uh, made new, just like you and I one day will be made new. So we need to recognize that. The grand scope of God's plan of redemption that encompasses not just a person, great as that is, to be sure, but encompasses heaven, the heavens and the earth. In other words, the skies and this planet, the universe. It's that big. It's that magnificent. Well, there's this, this painful anticipation, verse 22. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Again, that sense of anticipatory pain. Because there is pain in childbearing, uh, it, 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 is, it hurts, painful, and yet it's looking toward an end. It's looking toward a goal. Well, that's true with creation as well. It's suffering. It's under the curse. There's pain. Things are broken. But it's looking forward to, and this it, it's suffering itself is a part of bringing in this glory that is to come. The word groaning there. It uh, can have the idea of sighing. Sometimes that's used of, uh, of Jesus when he sighed. Uh, it can have the idea here of groaning, sort of that internal agony. Uh, it can have the idea even of complaining or grumbling. It's actually used in that way in a couple of places in Scripture. Or oh, the sense of lamenting. But here, as well translated, that inner groaning, that longing, that anticipation. Paul uses the word in 2 Corinthians 5 a couple of times in a similar context. Remember, he's talking about Uh, of our desire to be with the Lord. He says in this tent, in this body, we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling That anticipation again. And then verse 4, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 4, for while we're still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, that we would be further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. So there in 2 Corinthians 5, Paul again uses those terms to describe that sense of longing. Uh, of suffering now, but with a sense of hope for the future and longing for the future that will come. But that's what Paul is talking about here. Creation has that anticipation. Creation is waiting. But he goes on in verses 23 and 24 to point out Christians are waiting. Creation itself is waiting, but Christians also are waiting. Verse 23, not only the creation, but we ourselves. We have the first fruits of the spirit. Now that that's sort of an echo of what he was talking about earlier, uh, verses twelve through seventeen. That we are children of God by the Holy Spirit, and by the Spirit, you know, we call out Abba, Father. Uh, he bears witness to our spirit that we're children of God. And then that's why he says that here. He's kind of echoing what he said earlier. Um, we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit, in other words, real Christians those who have the Holy Spirit of God, those who are true children of God, not just anybody who happens to call themselves a believer, but those who really are believers. We groan inwardly like creation. We groan. We have that inner anticipation, that inner agony, as we wait eagerly for adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. So not just creation, but, but we, the people of God. Also, have that inward groaning of anticipation as we wait for what? Notice what he says. For adoption as sons. Well, wait a minute. You know your theology, you know that we're already adopted as God's children, right? Justification, adoption, sanctification, that order of salvation, that, that, order of events that takes place in our salvation. Well, we're justified and we're immediately adopted as God's children. We don't have to wait before we can call ourselves a son of God, a daughter of God. So why does he say that we're looking forward to the adoption of sons? Well, he goes on to qualify it right after that. The redemption of our bodies. Now, yes, we're already adopted children of God. That's what he was talking about earlier in this chapter. But what he's referring to here is, as he explains, the adoption, our adoption of sons, namely the redemption of our bodies. In other words, our resurrection, where we, in our new glorified body, will enjoy who we are as the sons and daughters of God, children of God. We need to recognize that this is a very important point. Most Christians think, I live... I die, I go to heaven, that's it. And live forever in some sort of vapor like state. Dear friends, that is not our biblical hope. Our biblical, that is an intermediate state. Westminster Confession of Faith will tell you that. The scriptures, more importantly, will tell you that. That is a state of waiting for. And yes, in that state, you will be waiting for something. Remember the martyrs under the throne that we see in Revelation. And they cry out, how long, Lord? They're in heaven. but They're looking forward to their vindication. How long? Well, we too, our great hope certainly is to be with the Lord when we die. Thank God for that. But our hope is the return of Christ and the resurrection of our bodies. Or as he says here, the redemption of our bodies. Because our bodies, too, were redeemed by the blood of Christ. Our bodies, too, will be raised up or reconstituted, whatever God has to do, to provide you with that glorified body on that day. I know people will say this at a funeral as a way of comfort. They'll say of the body, that's not him. He's with the Lord. That's half true. He is with the Lord. His soul is with the Lord. But, dear friends, that body in the coffin is that person. And think about it. That's how we knew that person. That's the hand his wife held. Those are the lips his wife kissed. That is that person. And one day, because Christ died for that person's soul and body, that body will be raised up and live in a glorified state in a glorified new earth. That is very solid, very tangible, and will look a lot like, but better than what you see out there today. The redemption of our bodies. Christ died for your body as he died for your soul. And he will raise up your body on the last day to be reunited with your glorified soul to live in a new heavens and a new earth. That's what we're looking forward to. Now, a lot of speculation about the nature of that new earth. The new part is is fascinating, but the fact that it's still called earth indicates, I think, that there will be a great deal of continuity with this earth. Yes, God will burn it up. Yes, God will purify it, but it will be restored. There will be continuity from earth to earth, just as there is from your body now to your body then, just as there was from Jesus' body before his crucifixion uh, and after his resurrection. There will be continuity. We look forward to that. Uh, And the pleasures and the joys of, 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 of a glorified, sinless creation filled with glorified, sinless people. But that's what he's talking about here. That's what we're looking forward to. We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. And this hope should be part of who we are as believers. Verse 24, for in this hope we were saved. But could also say, to this hope we were saved. In this we were saved. This is a part of who we are. Not just to say, well, I'm a Christian, I'm good now. You know, I'm just going to go out and live my life without any regard for Jesus. No. We were saved to enjoy and to groan with every day. This hope, this anticipation. Feeling the sinfulness of sin now. The groaning in the hope that it will one day be removed. It will be gone. That's what he's talking about. Verse 24, for in this hope we were saved. Do you feel that? If you were a child of God, do you feel that longing for the day when sin will be gone, when this world will be renewed, enjoy its redemption fully, and we will live, as Peter says, in a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells? It should be. That should be a conscious awareness. Not necessarily every moment of your life. Obviously, you have to think about things, other things. But is that something that's behind you? Something that when you stop to think about it, you're really looking forward to something that fills you with hope. That God hasn't just left us in this mess the way it is. But he's come to redeem us, and not just us, but this creation to provide a glorious place for which we are to live in, to dwell in. That's something to look forward to. That's something to wait for. Well, I want to give you just a couple applications along those lines that actually come right out of this passage. The beginning of it in the end of it. First, the end of it. The first application is to wait patiently. Look at verse 25. Well, look actually the middle of 24. Now, hope that is seen is not hope. Who hopes for what he sees? What's he saying there? Well, he's saying basically if you have it, you're not hoping for it, right? There were a lot of children who were hoping for Christmas Day, and it came, and they unwrapped their gifts, and so they have it now. They're no longer hoping for it. They have it. They enjoy it. It's no longer hoping or anticipating. They have it, Right? Well, that's what he's saying. If you have it, you're not hoping for it. You have it, right? That's, that's what he's getting at. But then verse 25, he says, But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. And that's where we are. We don't have it yet. But we're hoping for that which we do not see. And in fact, to some degree, which you almost can't comprehend, how can God take this fallen world and renew it? What is it like to live without sin? whether within me or in people around me. You say, well, that doesn't even sound human. Dear friends, that's truly human. Sin does not make us more human. It makes us less human. But we're waiting for it patiently. And we do have to be patient. You think, well, you know, it's been 2,000 years since Jesus left. Where is this coming, he promised? Well, think about it. It was that long from the time of Abraham, time of Moses, to Jesus, and longer. Read the Old Testament. How long it took when God promised Abraham a son before that son was born. And from Genesis chapter 3, where God begins to hint at the redemption that is to come until that redemption actually comes with the the birth and the life and the death and resurrection of Jesus. By recorded history, what we can measure is at least a couple of millennia and longer. So it may seem like a long time since Jesus was here and he hasn't come back yet. When's he going to come back? Well, if we learn anything from the Old Testament, we learn that God is in no hurry, and it's not really been that much longer from the time of Jesus till now as it was from early in the Old Testament until the time of Jesus. So, really, it hasn't been that long at all, if you look at it biblically, in proportion to the timeline of Scripture. Now, it may be a whole lot longer. I don't know. That's not to say Jesus is coming back soon because it's been that long. It may be many more millennia. I don't know. But we shouldn't be in a hurry. We wait, as he says, with patience. Second application, the last one I want to make here. Not only wait patiently, but weigh carefully. Look at verse 18. This is the first verse. We didn't really look at it, but I want to go back to it now. Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us, or it could be translated to be revealed in us. Paul says, I consider, that it indicates careful thinking. This isn't just something that's occurred to him. This is something he's thought a lot about, a reasoned conclusion. What was the conclusion? That the sufferings of this present age. That could be everything from a stubbed toe to a Nazi death camp. The suffering It could be everything from the test you bombed to the death of your spouse. The sufferings of this present age, whatever they are, and they can be pretty horrendous sometimes. The sufferings of this present age, this fallen time, can't compare to the glory that will be, will be revealed in us within us to us all around us but we will be a part of it it will be within us as god gives us that glorified nature that he redeemed us to have we wait patiently dear friends you also need to weigh carefully the events that occur to you now some of you have had and some of you will have some extremely painful and hard things happen to you in this life things that happen physically Injury, sickness, things that happen emotionally in your life. And they will seem like they're going to crush you. They will seem like they're going to undo you. And you say, God, do you not care? Where are you, God? Why have you let this happen to me? Your friends, as awful as that experience is, it can't compare to the joy and the glory and the delight of what God has prepared for you and for all who are in Christ Jesus. So you need to weigh carefully the suffering of this world to recognize that as as, as bad as it is, how much more the good is to come. So that Paul says, after thinking about it deeply, I've come to the conclusion that the sufferings of this present age, and Paul himself knew some taste of those sufferings, the sufferings of this present age can't compare with the glory that is to be revealed to us we need to trust the Lord on that we need to trust the scriptures on that you see as we've begun a new calendar we're reminded that the return of Christ is that much closer now if you have not followed Jesus this passage means that you need to turn from your sins That you need to follow Jesus. You need to put your trust in Him. You need to call Him your Lord. And you need to follow Him. But for those of you who are in Christ Jesus, this passage encourages us that the relentless forward march of time means that something grand is on its way. Something well worth waiting for. Something that will make the often bumpy way well. Worth your while. Let's pray. Increase our faith, Lord, because the sufferings of this present world can be terrible. And Father, we don't see how things can be better, we don't see how things could make sense. And yet your word tells us it is so. And Father, we believe you because it is your word and because we have the first fruits of the Spirit. We have the beginnings and seeing what you're doing in our own lives and what you're doing in the lives of others around us because of the resurrection life of Jesus. Father, encourage us with this passage because Lord, often we do groan in this world, but we groan not in despair, but we groan in hope, hope of the glory to come. We pray in Jesus' name, and we pray, come, Lord Jesus. Amen.